Welcome to Subcutaneous, a beneath-the-skin look at medicine with myself, Dr. G. And David. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Deirdre Knobloch, Dr. Deirdre Knobloch, um, who is joining us from Illinois via Zoom. And we are so excited to have you and chat with you, even though I'm sad it didn't get to be in person. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yes, Deirdre is a friend from uh, Lost Prairie, which is a skydiving event in Montana. Uh, we kind of met through mutual friends and everything like that. And last time, last year, last August, uh, Lindsay and I got to sit down and have a nice chat with her a few times. And when we started this podcast, we thought, oh, this would be a great conversation to have. So we're kind of... <laughs> the doctors at the prairie unite. It was We've awesome. been twisting her arm hard, <laughs> even though... She's quite busy right now. You want to tell us about uh, what you're up to right now? Oh, I'm, I apologize for my, my schedule. Um, yeah, so I am in my third year of private practice. And so right now is the time for me to do oral boards. Um, I'm an OBGYN by training. And so in surgical specialties, um, you do a written board at the end of your residency and then an oral board sometime within the first, uh, used to be eight years, but with COVID, they extended it to 10 years of private practice. Um, so I am submitting a giant list of all the patients I've taken care of for the last year with lots and lots of details about them into a database. Um, and then sometime in the fall, I will sit in front of a panel of people much more intelligent than me and, uh, you know, answer questions about the care that I provide. And hopefully they feel that I do a, an excellent job and pass me. So you had quite a, sounds like you've got up to 10 years to do this. Is there a reason you chose now or is it just you feel except you're as prepared as you're going to get? Probably a little bit of both. Um, Waiting too long is a bit of a double-edged sword because the more patients you take care of in a year, the more you have to submit and the more you have to potentially discuss and defend. Um, I think there's also the tendency that once you get out in private practice, you don't have attendings and senior residents looking over your shoulder anymore. And you, you can really practice a lot in the margins. In fact, I think you find out how much of medicine really is the art of medicine and yeah. practicing and learning as you go. And there's so much you can't learn even in a great residency and fellowship. So I think the downside is that you can get kind of away from what the guidelines are. And that's really what they want to see is that you're practicing evidence-based medicine. So um, you want to get enough cases. So your first year is usually not a good time to do it because you may not have surgical privileges um, you may not have seen enough volume to really fulfill the requirements, but you don't want to get too far out um, because they're probably going to start to think that you have gotten set in your ways, maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I love that too, though. Uh, practicing medicine. Somebody wise once told me it's called practicing medicine for a reason. Um, it's definitely an art and a yes. practice. So, Very interesting. So if everybody will please step with me into the Wayback Machine, we're going to go way <laughs> back here. And we're going to start, uh, oh, I guess we could step about uh, 30 years back. And uh, what's uh, what's young Deidre's life like? Do you, uh, brothers or sisters? I'm the youngest of four girls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, grew up on a farm. Fun fact, I was actually born out of the practice that I'm working for now. Aww. So the doctor who, 
Yeah. <laughs> so whenever patients ask me how long I've been there, I tell them that there's two answers. I've been there three years or I've been there 37 years and they just love that. Um, and if you had asked me four years ago, if this is where I would be, I would have said, hell no, but you know, that's, that's another, another journey. Um, yeah. So grew up on a farm and mom and dad, um, raised us to be tomboys. So we were out, you know, running around getting dirty. Um, my mom was a biology teacher at the time. My dad drove a concrete truck until he went to school and they were always really, really hands-on. I, I really had a pretty happy childhood. My mom was always teaching me to like look at bugs and go explore. And I think that kind of ignited my excitement for uh, the living world and, you know, kind of always finding new things to look at and learn about and um, just not become stagnant, not become bored. So, yeah. And you're even a bit of a farm girl now, aren't you? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, that that's pretty deep in your roots. That never really leaves you. Uh, I live in the country now. I, I work in a very rural area, so I'm 10 minutes from the hospital, but between me and the hospital is cornfields and dairy farms. And I have 11 chickens and five baby chicks and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so as a young child running around on the farm, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist and you better believe I knew all about what that was. I was <laughs> born, <laughs> I was born with a, a mild heart murmur. Um, so I was followed by a pediatric cardiologist from one of the children's hospitals in St. Louis. And I just loved her. I don't, she was this tiny Chinese woman. I remember her name was Dr. Chin and she just made me feel so safe and calm and not scared. And I just remember even at that young age thinking, I'd like to make somebody else feel that way. That feels good when it's scary to not know, you know, if you're okay and what's going on. And so for a long time, it was that. And then it was a veterinarian because I love animals, love taking care of things. And then in college, it was a microbiologist. I got really fascinated with the idea of working in like a level four lab in the CDC. Um, but then my senior advisor asked me if I liked doing research and I said, no. And he said, then why would you get a PhD? And I told him, thank you. Oh yeah. And that's when I kind of circled back to medicine. Um, I actually remember exactly where I was. I was uh, walking by one of the lakes at our school in Florida and my sister was chatting with me and she said, have you ever revisited the idea of going back into or going into medicine? And I thought, yeah, actually that kind of ticks all of the boxes. You know, it's challenging. It's new. I get to take care of people. Um, you know, it, the job itself is challenging, but the road to get there is challenging. Um, and yeah, I, I got really excited about it. So I was um, a year late for the application cycle that year. So I went and did a master's in physiology, which was a great stepping stone for me. Um, and then went to med school. So this um, epiphany moment by the lake, you were a junior in college? I was already a senior, senior at okay. that time. Okay. Yeah. So and I was applying to PhD programs and I wasn't getting in, which turned out to be a huge blessing because... I was horribly underqualified and I think I would have been miserable. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sometimes those things that we think in the moment are, you know, bad things are truly kind of a like push in the right direction, essentially. Um, Absolutely. So are, you, so are you the first doctor in your family then? You said your dad went back to my, dental school, right? 
Yeah. So he, um, he was older, like in his thirties when he went to dental school. Um, and my cousin is now a PhD in neuropsychology. Um, but I guess I'm technically, yeah, the first physician, Mm -hmm. um, in the family and the first MD, it sounds like. So yeah. DO, but yeah. Okay. What was your, uh, (laughs) what was your undergrad? My undergrad, um, was a major in biology with a minor in English. So I'm a little weird in the sense that I love like writing and literature and books. Um, but it was a really balance for me because then I got to kind of step away from all of the hardcore science and do something that I felt more personally passionate about. It, it was kind of by accident. My advisor said, Hey, you know, you're only one credit away from English minor. So I just took, you know, one more class and, but it, it was good. It felt nice to have that, that balance. What school was this? So I started my undergrad at actually where I went to med school. The med school wasn't there at the time. It was Lincoln Memorial University, um, which is in Harrogate, Tennessee, middle of nowhere, right on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. Uh, If you blink, you'll miss it. I was recruited to play. (laughs) I was recruited to play college volleyball there. Um, And then my after my sophomore year, I wanted a more competitive program. So I transferred to Lynn University, which is in Boca Raton, Florida. And finished out my four-year degree there and kept going with the biology. Okay. So you're, you know, you're in your senior year of college. You decide uh, medicine is going to be the path for you. You start uh, applying. What was that application process like? Did you apply very widely or did you have a pretty firm idea of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do or? I knew that I wanted to be a DO right off the bat. I didn't actually apply to any MD schools. Um, I shadowed a friend of mine who, a friend of my mom's who is a family practitioner and she was a DO. And now in retrospect, I realize there's not that big of a difference really between DOs and MDs personality or care wise. It's really more about the person and just how they are with their patients and the type of person that they are, you know, internally. But at the time, what I saw from her and that I thought was the difference was, you know, she just seemed really, she looked at the person as a whole. It wasn't just about what is this problem that you're complaining about? Okay, you have back pain, but tell me, what do you do for a living? Are you bending over a hundred times a day? You know, do you need to lose a hundred pounds? You know, are you picking up small children? You know, what's your exercise? What's your stretch regimen look like? What supplements are you taking? How are you eating? And I just really liked that aspect. It felt very in line with kind of the way that my mom raised us. She raised us to be very aware of what we were eating and how we were taking care of our bodies and always really focusing on if you take care of your body, it will take care of you. And so that just felt very in line with my beliefs. So I did apply pretty broadly. I didn't have any one particular school um, that I wanted to go to. Um, and I was just, yeah, I was, I was thrilled to get in because it's such a stressful process as Dr. G knows. I kind of want to ask you a little bit about this um, DOMD difference too, because I think that that's fascinating. And I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about it. Um, I agree with you. Like I, I only applied to MD schools. So kind of the opposite. Um, But I didn't like ever know anybody that was a DO or have that experience that you have. And I agree with you. People will ask me like, well, what's the difference? And I'm like, Honestly, I don't really feel like there is one. I know that there's a little bit of difference in some of the, um, like the manipulate, like you guys learn the manipulation, kind of the chiropractic mm-hmm. technique type things um, that MDs don't learn. But aside from that, in my opinion, they're pretty 
equivalent um, and I think have become yeah. to be seen as equivalent more as the years have gone on. Um, but maybe you can speak to the difference because I think that's a question that um, a lot of our listeners who might be interested in going into medical school have or even people who just aren't as familiar with the medical field might go, well, why does this person have DO up behind their name versus MD and what's the difference? Yeah, no, that's that's great that you um, are interested in that because you're right, a lot of it's so much better than it used to be, but a lot of people really don't know. So Dr. of Osteopathy was started um, by um, a physician who believed that the spine and the musculoskeletal system and the nervous system was basically the the core of our structure and that everything was interconnected, that your muscular system was, you know, and your nervous system especially was connected to your internal organs. Um, and he believed that if one area was out of balance, then another area was likely to be out of balance and you weren't going to fix one without fixing the other. Um, and so I think now the, the difference between MDs and DOs is definitely narrowing, especially because the residency programs are combined and there's a lot less stigma um, for hundreds of years, um, DOs were seen as less than physicians. In fact, there were some countries where they weren't even allowed to practice because we were seen basically as glorified chiropractors. Um, the main difference in the training is that DOs are are groomed to go into primary care specialties because we want that time and relationship with our patients to understand them as a whole and to be able to treat them on all those levels. Um, and so that mentality is really ingrained in you during med school. And then the other big difference, really only big difference, I would say, is that we have an additional two to 300 hours of learning manipulation of the musculoskeletal system in order to help balance that nervous system, which then runs everything. And just like everything in medicine that can go as far or not as far as you want. You know, I have colleagues who just do that and they, you can get really earthy crunchy with that. Um, but there are MDs out there, you know, who do the same and they get really into functional medicine and things like that. So, and then you have the total opposite end of the spectrum. I have colleagues who went into orthopedic medicine or neurosurgery and never, you know, cracked a back again in their life and that's fine. So I think it just depends. There was a time where getting into DO school was seen as easier. Um, and I think that's, again, more because their interview process kind of looked at who you are as a whole and did your belief system sort of align. They weren't necessarily as concerned with the numbers, but it's gotten a lot more competitive. Medicine has just gotten that way in general. Um, so I, I agree with you now. There's really not a whole lot of difference. But do you think did you go to a, this is kind of jumping ahead, but we'll kind of go back to, but did, did you go to a DO specific residency too? I, I didn't. And okay. I'm going to kind of betray my, my own kind now. <laughs> um, I did apply to both, but it's very stressful because at that time the matches were separate and you could only do one. So you could apply an interview to both, but if you stayed in the DO match, you had to pull out of the MD and vice versa. Um, and so that, that made it really stressful. Um, I actually did not match the first time around and I would be happy to elaborate on that if anyone's going through that, because I just want to reassure you, I, it is not the end of the world. I promise yeah. it happens to a lot of people. People just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I applied to MD programs because notoriously the volume tends to be better. So the experience and the training tends to be better. When I was interviewing at DO programs, um, a lot of times they were just smaller. They 
struggled or sometimes had to be sent out to other hospitals to get more experience, especially in gynecology. And I just really wanted to maximize my learning in one place. So I did only apply to to MD programs. And so I think I'll just do a little background too for people who are listening who might not be aware, but, you know, as I kind of alluded to, so DO programs have their own residencies that only DO students can apply for. Actually, I don't know if MDs can even apply for DO residencies, or is that changed? Do you know, Deirdre? I I don't know that with the merger, I'm not sure where all of that is at, to be honest. I, I think there's crossover now. Okay. But DOs could at least when I was going through and when you were going through could apply for MD residencies because traditionally there's been more MD schools and more MD residencies and fellowships to go on. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's different is that any DO student would have to then take the MD um, exams like the USMLEs, which are um, essentially Mm -hmm. the same thing as their DO exams, but um, just to standardize them essentially. Um, and then DOs can apply for MD programs. So if you're, con- if anybody listening is confused, just that's kind of what I'm alluding to by asking you these questions. Um, so, okay, we'll go back now. Um, when you went into med- medicine, were you still wanting to be that uh, pediatric cardiologist or had you uh, <laughs> changed your mind into OBGYN or what did you think you wanted to go into? No, I, I, I had kind of picked OBGYN pretty much from the beginning that the family practice doctor, the DO that I shadowed, she did a lot of women's health. And I was really struck by that relationship that occurs when a woman is taking care of a woman. You just, you automatically have an innate understanding whether or not you've ever had the problem that she's suffering from. There's just an immediate rapport purely by being the same, same gender, um, or I should say same sex. Um, And I just, my mom, again, the way that she raised us, she always talked about having four babies and how amazing it was to be a mother. And that was, she was just very nurturing. And she really talked about that experience a lot. You know, she had four kids with an epidural. She was in the La Leche League. Like she was super pro breastfeeding. Um, Jason just came home. So I'm just waving to him. Um, (laughs) He's out there poor guy hauling dirt today. Um, but so she was really like nurturing and she was also the breadwinner of our household and, you know, totally wore the pants in the relationship. So my, my mom was badass. She still is a badass. (laughs) Totally. I mean, not perfect, but especially as I get older, I really, really appreciate all that she did for us. And so her focus on the importance of women in our family and our societies really gave me that desire to help take care of other women and help empower them to, you know, be, be those roles for the people around them that they needed to be. So that's, I, I never faltered. Uh, well, I shouldn't say never. I briefly faltered and thought maybe general surgery was my calling. Which has overlap with only, OBGYN, lots of surgical overlap. Yeah. And that's really Yeah, exactly. That's what I was really attracted to. But then I got to a point where after only a month on the rotation, I thought I might die if I had to do another lap coli. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, if I'm bored with this bread and butter procedure, then this is not the specialty for me. So I, uh, yeah, I I came back over to the, the dark side. Well, I guess she, you break the trend and we've got a little bit of a trend where it's like nobody who enters medical school leaves doing what they thought they were going to do, but I guess you did. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's bizarre. It is strange to me, but 
No, I mean, the first time I delivered a baby in medical school, um, the attending was over my shoulder whispering in my ear, just don't drop it over and over again. Just don't drop it. I will say the one thing I remember about my OBGYN rotation is being in a C-section and having the attending saying how much blood the patient's losing per, I don't know, minute, second, whatever. Um, And just like, so it's so funny. You're like, your attending was like over your shoulder saying, don't drop the baby. But like, that was like the like feel I got from OBGYN too. And I loved OBGYN. I almost did. I was very interested in REI, reproductive endocrinology and infertility. But um, I just remember people being like, oh, don't drop the baby. Or like, this is how much they're bleeding. Go, go, go. Like do this. Like, mm-hmm. so there's very much like an adrenaline like slash ER overlap component. And then you get the surgery component. Oh, yeah. like, I can see why it's so great for you. Um, just, you know, the, the bit that I know about you. But um, I think that that's, you know, awesome. You win. Yeah, I used to tell people, I used to tell people that I wasn't an adrenaline junkie and now I'm like, maybe I am because I picked up skydiving and I'm in a specialty where like my mentor in med school um, always told me, he said, you don't have to be the smartest to be an OBGYN, but you got to be good when the shit hits the fan. And that is so true. Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess maybe I am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. I can see it. You little, you two little adrenaline junkies. You. Yeah. So, um, how was med school? Was it hard? Was it easy? Like, uh, what was it like? I, well, first Whoa. of all, you're, you're moving back to this small school. I guess my first question is, uh, is this kind of a rural program? Is that what this is designed as? Because you mentioned that uh, DOs are kind of trained as primary care, and you're moving mm-hmm. to a small mm-hmm. school. So I imagine they're trying to train rural doctors. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, keep them in primary care specialties and also keep them in that area. That was actually one of the Mm. mission statements of the school. So the medical school um, is called the DeBusk College of Osteopathic Medicine. And Pete DeBusk actually started, I mean, he is a, you know, salt of the earth kind of guy. He made his money selling medical equipment out of the trunk of his car. And he is now like a multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar company all around the world. If you see DeRoyal products, which are really big in orthopedics, especially that's his company. Um, And so he really wanted to create an opportunity for physicians in Appalachia and the South to stay there because that is an area of the country that is notoriously been underserved. Um, So it was really strange. I was in grad school and a bunch of other people in my program were applying to med school. And a girl who was in the cycle ahead of me um, said, Hey, I just came back from this interview at this really beautiful brand new DO school, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And I said, really where? And she said, Tennessee. And I said, no, really where? And she goes, you've probably never heard of it. It's called Lincoln Memorial. And I was like, I went to undergrad there. They built a med school there. Like it's in the middle of the Cumberland gap. Like there's mountains, there is nothing to do around there, but hike and create trouble. Um, So yeah, I ended up applying and uh, got in and it was, I ended up going to uh, med school with two people that I had gone to grad school with. So we stayed friends and, you know, we're really, really close through all that. And that was kind of nice too, because I automatically had some friends when I went. So um, med school was awful. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think about it frequently because it's, so surreal now. I, I realize that 
both from med school, but also from the grieving process, there are so many things that your brain, I don't know, forgets or um, suppresses is the right word, but there are so many things that I actually can't remember in great detail about med school because it's like the old saying is you're drinking, you're trying to take a small sip from a fire hose. And that is so true. I mean, I, I really don't remember all the details about med school. It's basically eat, drink, mm-hmm. and study. I remember like right now I'm preparing for my oral exams and today it was like a big deal to take a break, to take a shower. And that's how it felt studying for exams in med school. And so it gave me a little PTSD, um, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> that's how I felt about um, med school too. It was just a grind. And all I remember is the grind. Yes. Like, oh, I went to the coffee shop a lot. Like, that was the cool thing that I did. So you went to the yeah, coffee shop to yeah. sit and study, but you right. went to the coffee shop. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it just, it's totally all consuming and you really just find yourself in survival mode, trying to get through, like trying to pass each system and exam and everything else that you have to do. And then suddenly you have this like looming, um, you know, obstacle of trying to get into residency on the horizon and getting out into rotations. And you just, you just don't know anything. It's so overwhelming, but probably the best part of med school was the people that I met and I am still best friends with. um, And when I say best, like, I mean that like these people are still my, my, like my siblings, you know, over 10 years later, Um, it's a guy who was my neighbor Um, And he and I are really close. And then a girl who lived in the annex apartment complex and she and I are still super close. And then another um, guy friend of mine. And so like this little core group of people, you know, they're, they're still my best friends and we're still involved in each other's lives. And that that's the best part for sure was those people and those relationships that will continue on. Because when you go through something hellish like that with those people, there's nothing that binds you tighter than being in those kind of trenches. Yeah, even, yeah, and trenches is the right word. Like, this is traditionally kind of viewed as a military thing. Like, you know, when you go into, you know, training or combat or anything, when you're with your brothers or sisters in arms, it's kind of the same sort of experience. Maybe even more drawn out, but uh, a very similar experience. Mm-hmm. And we've heard the same thing from every person we've interviewed. It's like, oh, the best thing I came out of med school was with was my colleagues and my mm-hmm. friends. and. Yeah the mm-hmm. relationships I formed while I was there. And the worst part about yeah. med school was med school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I yes. feel like I actually kind of liked med school, but maybe, but maybe it's funny to bring this up because I'm like, well, maybe I just like suppressed it all. And like, I only, cause I'm very much a look in the rear view mirror or what is it? Like look in the rose colored glasses. Rose, like that is 100% yeah. me. And so it's like, Oh, like I'm probably just remembering the good parts about this. Um, but I felt like it was fun. I did love third and fourth year. Like once you actually get into the medicine, it's a little bit better. Yeah. I, I loved most of third and fourth year. I didn't have, I can't even really think of any rotation that I had that was just absolutely horrendous. I was mm-hmm. really lucky or blessed, whatever you want to call it. I had, I had great mentors um, that I developed great relationships with. I'm still in touch with a few of them even now. I mean, people that I rotated with as a third year med student, but they, really have a huge impact, especially on the specialty that you pick. Because if you have a terrible experience on a rotation, and I'm a big believer of this, especially because in residency, you know, we had med students all the time. 
And it was such a win when we converted someone to OBGYN because unfortunately our rotation tends to be known as really difficult and sometimes the residents are really malignant. Um, and that's a terrible reputation for our specialty and residency across the board. But it's such a big win when you convert someone because if you can show them the best of what that specialty has to offer, they will remember that and how they felt forever, you know, and maybe you've sparked their true desire. You never know. What do you're at a small rural medical college uh, that's just kind of kicked off? What do rotations look like? Are you traveling a lot? Yeah, a lot of our rotations were in the South because again, they wanted a lot of us to stay there. In fact, they, I forget what the percentage was, but they intentionally recruited like 75% of the class from the surrounding four or five states so that people would hopefully stay there, which I, I think is a great mission. Um, so it was a lot of kind of traveling all over the state just because by the nature of being a smaller school, they had to find new rotations for you because the big university hospitals were already full with students from other programs. So that was probably, that was a big frustration, you know, was our school was brand new. We were only the second or third class, I forget now to graduate out of it. So they didn't have all that ironed out yet. And then people would be a preceptor one year and not want to be one the next year. So I did travel a good bit. Um, and God, that's expensive. Nobody tells you that. <laughs> Nobody tells you that your loan money is going to need to feed you, clothe you, mm -hmm. you know, pay yeah. for your tuition, board, books. And also, by the way, any travel expenses you might have going halfway across the country to do a rotation and something that's really important to you. Yeah. So, so you kind of mentioned, obviously, um, general, yeah, OBGYN spoke to you. General surgery, you had a little, maybe a little touch of what? What do you rotate in that you were like, nope, not for me. Don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> Don't say dermatology. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I. Well, okay. Truth about derm. Um, I love derm. I actually didn't rotate through derm until I was an intern. Um, and that kind of goes back to like, why was I even doing a derm rotation as an intern? But. Um, I really loved the docs that I work with and they were very busy. One of them was a Mohs surgeon and um, the other one was a dermatopathologist. So I really liked them. They seemed happy. They had a pretty good lifestyle. You know, it seems like they were making good money. And I, I liked the relationship and the continuity with patients. Um, I don't really know. I'm not sure why it didn't really appeal to Hit me. It to me Pro hard, Deirdre. I can take it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Probably the lack of adrenaline to me. Honest, oh yeah. Now yeah. in retrospect, there's not a lot of adrenaline and rashes, really. Like and even Mohs surgery. Like I mean, the like I was talking to David about this today too. Like I mean, my like oh, I got to be calm under pressure moment is like um, the superficial temporal artery is like bleeding. You know, like okay, it's bad, but it's not like somebody's uterus that's going to bleed out. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's scary. That sounds scary to me. So, you know, I say to each their own. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. But yeah, it's very much that doesn't happen very often either. So it's not as much of an adrenaline. Um, I com I completely avoided PATH because I knew that mm -hmm. sitting in a dark room um, was not for me. Oh, I, I can't answer this actually. Radiology. I go. did rotate through radiology and I was like, no, not in a hundred thousand years, you couldn't pay me enough money, especially because I think I did it during the winter. And so I came into the hospital when it was dark. Mm. I sat in a dark room all day and I left the hospital when it was dark. And that was 
awful. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, had I known about subspecialties like maybe interventional yeah, radiology, I, I think that. I could have been really into that. Um, but those are the things that you don't find out about usually until it's too late or until you rotate in a big hospital where you're exposed to that. So I think that's one of the big negative things about med school that I will say, like you're saying, like you didn't ever even rotate on Durham until you were an intern. And for me, I did an intern rotation, just got assigned to it to do interventional radiology. And I remember doing that and being like, this is a cool specialty. Like, I didn't even know mm-hmm. this existed. I remember not not knowing that PM&R even existed, too. Like, there's so many things out there that you're just not exposed to. But that's a mm-hmm. whole other soapbox or bag of worms. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot out there that I think you really would either have to seek out yourself and there's just not enough time to think that med school's four years in such a grind and there's still so much you don't see is crazy. Yeah. And I, I think that that also touches on kind of one of my qualms with the fact that people are expected to go straight into med school from undergrad. Some of my classmates who did that seemed so young and sometimes naive. I, you're probably the, I think you're the exception. I mean, I think you're wise beyond, beyond your years. Oh, wow. Um, but you, <laughs> well, you've had some life experiences that I think, you know, have changed your, your maturity level. Um, and that's not a criticism to them, but I can imagine, you know, going to med school right after undergrad and a couple years later being like, was this the right choice? Was I really like wanting this, committed to this? Um, And so we had a lot of like atypical older students in our class. And I think they were sometimes the most successful and the hardest working because they had been out in the world, they had other jobs and they knew that this was what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's so hard. How can you possibly know what you want at like Mm -hmm. 22, 23? How can you want it? How can you know that you want to invest another 10 or 15 years into what you're going to do and not start your career in your earlier mid thirties? Yeah. Tell us Dr. Goddard. (laughs) <laughs> but I can't even imagine like going to med school now. Like you were talking about yeah. it too, like studying now, like, I don't know, I guess it's a like, I don't know, catch 22 or whatever. But like, you know, we gave up our 20s. And so these people, you know, got their 20s and might be giving up their 30s. I'd take my 30s and uh, give up my 20s. But um, I just can't imagine going to med school, like working and then going to med school and like doing the grind and then residency, which is maybe even more of a grind, especially for something like OBGYN. Um, mm-hmm. that, that to me is just like, at least for me, I went straight through. It was just like the grind continued, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. undergrad and not as much of a grind, but more than high school. And then it just right. got progressively harder because I do think residency, even if you do something that's like, quote unquote, easy, like dermatology. Um, yes, compared to my peers, I worked less hours, but I did maybe more like book studying. So it's still a mm-hmm, grind mm-hmm. in that sense. So yeah, and it's interesting. Oh, yeah, even, I completely even, agree. Even just yesterday, we were talking to uh, Dave, a resident here mm-hmm. in Spokane. And he's a big older, he had a career outside of medicine for, you know, many years and everything like that. But he's looking at he's just getting ready to go start his residency. He's a transitional year. He's going to be 42 when he's done. And that's like, that's, that's late to start a career. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, that's, I mean, that's, that's a journey there. And, you know, and it's a big financial sacrifice. I mean, I, one of my episodes about finance, that's kind of, you know, I have an accounting degree. That's kind of one of my other nerdy joys. Um, But like, (laughs) that's hard too. like from both perspectives, but like to start actually making money good or like taking these years, hardworking earning years and 
paying money to work and then not really making a living till you're 42. I mean, it's all hard. I don't think it's easy either way. Pros and cons, just like everything in life. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I agree. I think it's just different, different versions of hard, you know, and I, I really respect people who go into dermatology, especially because it's, and urology is another great example. It's so competitive. And so maybe your residency, and I'm not saying you specifically, but maybe it isn't as in depth hours wise, but like you said, you're probably spending more time in front of those books because you know that you have to be super competitive. You have to get a certain score to even be looked at for a program. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just different, different kinds of hard. Yeah. Do you feel like your what you you did a one year uh, master's program, or was it two mm-hmm. one year? Um, do you feel like that definitely helped you kind of be ready for med school and just, or was it more of like okay, I had one year to like kind of like have fun and relax and do more life experiences before I started? No, it was really helpful for me. Um, I say this with all modesty, but high school and college were not super hard for me. <laughs> um, I mean, I was taking 18 credits of, you know, advanced Mm -hmm. bio and physics and playing volleyball at the same time and carrying an academic and an athletic scholarship. So, and I, I'm not saying that to brag at all. I'm saying, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a great challenge. And so, and I also went to a liberal arts school, so it's not like they had a really rigorous biology program. But when I went to grad school, it was a big wake up. Like the first time I didn't get an, an A on a test, I was like, what? I have to study? This is ridiculous. But it was a really good, it was a really good wake up call because then med school came and that's all you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that time that, you know, again, it was, that's the way things were supposed to play out. I was not supposed to get into those PhD programs. I was supposed yeah. to be late in the application cycle. I needed that year um, and a half of grad school um, because I, I think I would have floundered. I think I really, really would have struggled. I mean, maybe not have even passed. So I, I'm glad that I did that. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe you didn't have very good study skills before entering grad school because it had always been kind of easy and you had to learn that real yeah. quick and you dig it in a way that saved you in medical school. You had to figure that out. I've got. Yeah. And I. too. Uh, and I was a TA in grad school, which I, I also found out that I really love teaching. So that was fun because then I got to carry that over into residency. But when you are a teacher um, and you try to be a good teacher, you learn a lot about how other people learn. And that also teaches you more about how to study and how to be effective. And so I think that was that was a big help for me as well. So you're coming to the end of med school. It's time to start applying for residencies. You have an idea of what you want to do. Where do you want to go? Do it's kind of the same question as before. Did you apply broadly? Did you do two twenty-two interviews? Did you do five? Uh, um, I did not do twenty-two interviews. Thank God. Um, I did apply pretty broadly at the time. I thought that I'd like to probably land back in the Midwest and be near my family again. So I kind of focused there, um, at least within, you know, weekend driving distance or something like that. So I did apply pretty broadly. Um, in med school, there's step one, step two, and step three. Mm-hmm. Um, and step three, you can take at any point, I think it's, 
I forget now if it's your third or fourth year, but the timing of that and the score that you get on that really determines how quickly you're looked at for interviewing and how many interviews you may get. And I made the mistake of putting that exam off until kind of the last possible time I could take it. Um, and I did decently well on it, but programs had already filled their interview slots by the time I even got that information to them. So that was a lesson. It was hard to learn. I didn't get very many interviews the first time around. And I think ultimately that's probably why I didn't match. Um, I also really put all my eggs in one basket into an MD program that I really, really loved. And I was so naive thinking that I would finally be the first DO that they picked. And that was oh. stupid. Um, <laughs> so, and that, that, again, that kind of difference between the two is not really, I think, an issue anymore. But, oh God, how many years ago was that? 10 years ago? You know, that was still a big difference. Some MD programs just didn't look at DOs right. because we just weren't competitive enough or what, for whatever reason. Um, and that's their prerogative. That's fine. So I did not match. And that was totally earth shattering. Like I thought my career was over and that all of the last four years of struggle and hardship was just down the toilet. And I thought, and then your brain starts spiraling into this, oh my God. And now because I didn't match, everyone will know this about me. Everyone will see this and I will become a less desirable candidate to everyone else because they'll wonder why didn't you match the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is an awful process to go through mm-hmm. because then you go into what's called a scramble and for an entire week, every day from 10 to four, you constantly put your name into basically a basket and you're applying to specialties that you have no desire to be in. Like general surgery, family medicine have a ton of slots because they do these, um, big programs. Lindsay, I forget what they're called now. Um, where they they'll take like, Yes. Thank you. Where they'll take like 18 residents. But what you don't know at the time is that by the second year, they're only going to keep nine of you. And so nine people are going to go into the wind. Um, And so you do that for a week and it is terrifying. And you're on a rotation at the same time Mm -hmm. because you're finishing up your fourth year. So it's so stressful. While your friends who have Um, matched are like, woohoo. Like, I just can't even imagine like that what they call match yeah, week, which is supposed to be like the most fun week of your med school too. And then for those that don't match, like how hard that could yeah, be. Yeah. And it's, there's so much stigma. It's like, Oh, why, why didn't she match? Like were her scores really bad? Did mm-hmm. she not interview well? You know, it's all of those, those things. Um, so, but so, not to, while we're right on that specific subject, do you have input yeah. onto why you didn't match for maybe people out there? I wasn't realistic about how competitive I was. I've, to be honest, I've never been a super strong test taker and I still hadn't really honed my studying skills at that point. Um, Well, it sounds like you just had a step one score and not a step two score um, when you applied then, because that's, you know, step two you take in at the end, you know, second or third year of med school. Um, And so you probably only had one score to go off of. um, I had two because there's, there's three, there's three okay. steps, but yeah, so I, I, I didn't have it in sufficiently and I didn't apply broadly enough with that. And I, I just didn't have my, my stuff together early enough. That was the bottom line. 
And it's hard because you have so many other things going on, but you have to always be kind of looking for the next thing, whether or not you have to tackle it right at that moment. You have to keep your eyes on the horizon because it sneaks up on you and then sometimes it bites you in the butt. So you're at this period where you didn't match your, you know, doing all this applications to all these programs. Where you, what happens from there? So I didn't get picked up by any of the prelim programs. And again, thank God that didn't happen. Blessing there maybe. Mm-hmm. And I, um, so then it gets really scary because after the scramble is over, you are just like left in the wind and your med school might help you as much as they can, or they might not really help you. And you basically just start Googling programs and call cold calling them and finding lots available. And that's what happened to me. Um, so, and at this point I'm thinking like, am I gonna have to take a break from medicine? Am I gonna have to go get a job and do like normal people's stuff for a year, even though I just spent four years in med school. Um, so I found a program in Ohio that was again, brand new. And it was a DO program. Um, and DOs used to have to do something. It used to be mandatory that everyone did what's called a rotating internship, where you spend a year basically rotating through all the core specialties like ER and internal medicine. So basically and like a traditional a, year. What I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I had a derm derm resident um, who was in my program. And so that yeah. was her transitional year. Um, and it's not just for people who don't match. That is sometimes a really nice opportunity for people who still haven't kind of set on what specialty is best for them. So um, I spoke with the program director who had a spot open and he and I just hit it off. And he said, kiddo, I just feel like you're meant to be in this program. I don't know why you didn't match, but I feel like you would be a really good fit here. And that was in Chillicothe, Ohio, middle of nowhere, south of Columbus. (laughs) I'm sensing a theme here. (laughs) Yeah, 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 Um, definitely. So I'm I'm very good at adapting to being in the middle of nowhere. Um, Yeah, so I got accepted into this rotating internship and it ended up being such a good experience. It affirmed my love for OB. I got really good basic foundational skills and so many other specialties. And then when I came to OB where I was still treating hypertension and still treating diabetes, but I was just doing it all in pregnant women, I was leaps and bounds ahead of my cohorts who had just come out of, you know, their core rotations because I was used to being a resident. So I had I knew the skills, I knew the same things they did, but I had the confidence to do it. Um, so it was, it was a really good experience. And then I matched into my number one choice the following year. I found a program in Michigan that looked at me having that intern year as a plus and had all my ducks in a row this time and got my first choice. That's great. But had to go through the match twice, which was probably a not stressful. Fun, but... Um, it was very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. It was also kind of embarrassing to apply and sometimes be interviewed by the same program twice, mm. you know, and they, they would ask you like, well, why didn't you match last time? And you wanted to be like, well, I don't know why you didn't you pick me last time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're, you get through this kind of transitional year and you move into your residency. What was that like? Was there, were you elated to finally, you know, you've made it at this point and like now you get to really get in the meat and potatoes or were you nervous or combination? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, definitely all of the above. Um, 
I went to a community program that had a lot of volume, which was great for learning, but unfortunately it was a very toxic environment Mm -hmm. and it was so exceptionally unpleasant um, from a social perspective to be in a program where you had toxic senior residents watching over you. And um, I was uh, put down for having knowledge and often accused of being overconfident and, you know, being too big for my britches. And uh, that, that was really hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to be told that you are a person that, you know, you're not. And I've, I've been really independent. I mean, I've lived in eight states since I graduated high school. I haven't lived at home in almost 20 years. So I've had to be really independent. And there's a certain level of confidence that I think that comes with that. Mm -hmm. But when it's perceived or um, mislabeled as something else, that's, that's really hurtful. Yeah. So, so so socially residency was very hard. Um, How about the other aspects of it? Kind of the learning curve, like what were your favorite parts of residency? Um, The learning curve was great. And I got along great with my attendings because they were like, Oh, cool. Canoe block. Like we don't have to like watch every tiny little thing that she does because she's done a little bit of this before. Mm -hmm. So my rapport with my attendings was really good. And I don't know, maybe that's, I mean, I don't consider myself a kiss ass. I'm usually pretty like who I am on the face is who you get. But um, I don't know that probably added to some of the dislike. I got along really well with my co-residents and the, the underclassmen, it was the seniors. And there was just, mm-hmm. you know, this constant like inheritance of this toxic attitude that just mm-hmm. kept getting passed on. Um, but it was a great place to learn. The attendings really let us do everything. Got such good hands-on training. It was a tertiary care center. So high volume, lots of pathology. Um, and that's, that's really what you want, especially in uh, OB. So then you go on to do a fellowship. Um, what yeah. was that process like and why did you decide to do a fellowship and why did you decide on, um, the one you did? So when I went to residency, I had rotated in maternal fetal medicine or MFM, which is specializing in high risk pregnancies. And I thought that that's what I wanted to do. I loved it. Um, but then when I was in residency, I realized that that was not the lifestyle that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't as procedure based Mm-hmm. At least where I trained, it wasn't as procedure-based as I would have wanted it to be. I, I wanted the hands-on. I really started to fall in love with surgery again. Okay. Um, and I had a gynoc attending who had just done some locums work in Seattle um, in a program where they accepted one fellow a year. It was a, um, technically they called it a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive fellowship, but it was really more like minimally invasive gynecological surgery, what we call MIGS. And it was run by two gynonks and an infertility doctor. And um, so I applied and I got in and it was incredible. And I am so grateful for that experience. I, I loved everything about it. I loved Seattle. I felt like I had found my, my home. <laughs> um, I loved the Pacific Northwest and loved the people. I had great attendings. <laughs> And and I'm not just saying that, you know, because it's you guys, it's really true. Oh, no, we know Um, know it's true. It's great out here. (laughs) No one (laughs) It is. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'll keep that to myself. Um, (laughs) Oh, the rain. It's terrible. Um, Yeah. No, I, I loved it. It was a great experience. I had great attendings. 
Um, I really felt, again, kind of like the whole master's into med school. It was such a good transition because as a fellow, you're treated a little bit more like a colleague and given even more autonomy um, and just more freedom and more trust. And there's, especially because it's smaller, it's maybe, you know, in my program, it was just me and like three attendings. And I was their right-hand person all the time. So there's none of this like competitive, nasty hierarchy stuff that you deal with mm-hmm. in residency. You're right. just there so to it was each other and get bigger. At, yeah. Was that a one year or two year fellowship? It was a one year program. Okay. Didn't get to stay long enough for it to stick, I guess. <laughs> it wasn't that, trust me. It wasn't that. <laughs> and you did that straight from residency, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. In fact, um, I had some bereavement leave that I had to make up for at the end of residency. So I moved out of my house in Michigan, drove straight for three or four days and started my fellowship basically like two days late. Um, and the same thing happened with my internship to my residency, actually. <laughs> so yeah. my, mm-hmm. my husband had a pneumothorax when I was a rotating intern. He had a lobectomy. And two days later, I needed to be starting residency in Michigan. So God love them. My parents and his parents drove to Ohio, packed up our entire apartment for us, moved everything into our house in Michigan. So we literally drove up and I went to work and he continued his recovery. If you don't mind me asking, when did you meet your husband? I met him my senior year of college. Okay, so he was with you kind of throughout the whole journey there, through medical school and into your residency. Yeah, Yeah, we broke up for a period of about two years there when I was my first and second year of med school. We weren't together, but we had known each other. Uh, it just wasn't me. Your, it was just him. destroys your relationships. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, well, it, yeah, it wasn't me. It was him. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, we he'd gone through three tours in Iraq. We'd gone through me going through med school, the whole not matching thing, you know, my rotating internship, and then my first year of residency together. So we, again, had been in the trenches uh, mm. together, so to speak, through a lot of stuff. And some long distance there too. Was that part of the the problem with a uh, med school? And because you went straight from college, I'm guessing you were together in college, senior year of college, and then you go off to the mm-hmm. small town. He's like, heck no, I'm not moving there with you. Was he in the military then and kind of on assignment yeah. somewhere else? So you were trying to do long distance at that time? Yeah, we were distance for eight of the 10 years that we knew each other. Um, wow. And yeah, so we got really good at phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> um, and no, the the breakup really more stemmed from he had already done a tour in Iraq. He was for 18 months. He was due to go back again. He was suffering but not acknowledging PTSD. And he genuinely thought he wasn't going to come back. So he thought I'm doing her a favor by not putting her through this. And I had talked at one point about putting med school on hold temporarily to move wherever he was just so we could spend, you know, six months or a year together before he was deployed again. And he interpreted that as she's going to give up her dream of medicine for me. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when we got back together, I was like, hell no, I wasn't giving them medicine for you. I was just going to put it on the back burner. And he was like, well, I know that now. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know how much more you want to touch on this topic, but so you're in your residency and uh, 
was at what point does he pass? So the very beginning of my second year of residency, he uh, died very unexpectedly of a widowmaker heart attack. And um, I, I, I don't know if I would say that I believe that everything happens for a reason, but I do believe now that everything happens the way that it's supposed to. Um, but his death to this day is still such a medical mystery, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he was fairly so young for that, I assume. He was 36. Oh, wow. Uh, no, no major family history of heart disease. And he, um, like I mentioned, he had this spontaneous pneumothorax that happened right. three times at the end of my rotating internship. So he had the lobectomy, he had the pleuridesis, which is where they scar the lung tissue basically mm-hmm. to the chest wall. So it can't happen again. And they didn't know if that was from his, he had previously been a smoker. He had quit for years at this point, mm-hmm. um, or if it was stuff that he was exposed to in Iraq, you know, breathing it in. So they have um, no idea why he's getting these repeat pneumothoraces at this point. Yeah. They, they of... know that he had blebs like, you know, giant blisters on his lungs and, but they had no idea like why they suddenly popped, but he was, he's kind of the textbook. He was like a tall, skinny, white guy, yeah, former say, smoker. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Mar fans. They, I think they did test him for that at one point. Um, yeah. So he, he recovered from those and did fine. Um, but the day after Thanksgiving, my intern year, so that was about, um, like five, six months later. Yeah. He woke up with chest pain um, and we thought, well, maybe it's your lung again. So we went to the ER where I was resident and they worked him up and everything was fine. And, you know, nothing on the CT and the ER doc thought maybe there was something a little weird on his EKG. So they admitted him. And when the cardiologist came and saw him, she said, you know, you're 36. I don't even think this is anything. I wouldn't normally do this, but something just tells me, let's do a cath on you to see if there's any disease. So he goes for a cath and the interventionalist comes back out and he tells me that there's nothing. He can't find anything. He can't even induce like spasm in the artery to cause, you know, to mimic this pain, nothing, everything's fine. I mean, he gets discharged home that night. So um, he kind of like then that following summer. So this is nine months later after the cath then, um, he starts developing kind of intermittent chest pain, but it seems very reflux like, like it gets better when he takes anti-reflux meds. He, his PCP is aware of it. You know, she puts him on protonics and um, he doesn't seem to have like exertional chest pain. He's it's worse. Like if he's drinking alcohol or he eats fatty food. And so um, didn't, didn't think, you know, anything of it. And um we got up on a Sunday morning and um, he didn't want to go to church. He didn't feel well. So I went and when I came back, he just looked terrible, um, like pale, diaphoretic. And I said, what's, what's going on? And he's like, my chest really hurts. And I said, do you want to go to the ER? And he's like, no, they're just going to tell me it's nothing again. You know, I don't think it's my lung. It feels different than that. And so Okay. So we kind of went on, you know, our morning for a little bit and I kept asking him, I was like, do you want to go? Do you want to go? And he's like, no, no, no. They're just going to tell me it's nothing. I feel silly. And, um, he, um, just kept feeling worse. And finally he said, okay, let's go to the ER. 
And by the time that I walked down the hall, 10 feet into our bedroom, threw on a different t-shirt and walked back into the living room, he was like purple and not breathing. And um, it, it just happened so fast. So um, called 911, that's a whole nightmare. God, I, I have a whole new respect for people who have to sit on the phone with an operator and you're just like infuriated at how slowly they're talking to you when you know your life is like dying in front of your eyes. Um, and he was, I made them resuscitate him for like 45 minutes, but he never, mm-hmm. never regained a meaningful heartbeat. Um, Were you there doing I mean, CPR on him at some point too, or? Before the EMTs yeah. got there. Yeah. Um, and that was awful too, because they yeah. wouldn't come in the house because the dog was like in the house, like they made me restrain the dog. Like, so I had to like drag my poor dog who's freaking out our dog, my dog that I still have like into the bathroom. He bites me cause he doesn't know what's going on. I'm sure he's totally panicking. Jeremy was his person. Um, <clears throat> So like they wouldn't come into the house until that was taken care of. And um, yeah, so they, I remember like the ER doctor come, came in and we lived in a different town. So we went to a different ER. It wasn't my hospital. And he came in and he said, I really think we should stop. And I said, we're not going to stop. And I just, <laughs> you'll never feel so helpless. Being in medicine. Mm-hmm. And being completely powerless to stop what's happening in front of you. And that was, I really struggled with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Feeling like I failed to see the signs. I mean, he, he mowed, he push mowed our half acre yard in 90 degree heat the day before he died. Now you tell me <laughs> as somebody in medicine, like, that would give anyone with three vessels full of plaques chest pain, right. but it didn't. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, dead the next day. So um, he had the autopsy um, because of his young age, which I would have requested anyway. And the pathologist called me and I'll never forget. He said, um, did he have a history of heart disease? And I said, no, there's none in his family. And I, I told him, he had a clean calf nine months ago and his exact words to me were, there's no way that's possible. He said he had 99% occlusion in all three major vessels. And I have told this story to so many doctors and so many attendings who've asked over the years. And uh, <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody can explain it. Yeah. No. Yeah. So where do you go from there? Like, obviously there's a lot of guilt a lot of right self-doubt or you know you you mentioned several times like as somebody who's in medicine like why couldn't i spot this or what happened here you know why couldn't i stop this so how do you how do you deal with that because i imagine you know a lot of physicians deal with this at some point may not be their loved one or anything like that but it may be a patient that they uh you know they just didn't see Mm what they feel like they should have seen, even if there was nothing to see, right? Like you, you know, you blame yourself. Our nature is to blame ourselves and be like, look through it through hindsight and be like, Oh, well, this was so obvious. Why didn't I see this and save Mm -hmm. this person? How do you move on and Mm -hmm. start to deal with this or. Um, Well, I took three months off of work because I wasn't sure. 
doesn't sure about anything. You suddenly have no idea who you are. Doesn't matter how independent or self-sufficient you think you are, but getting to know someone over 10 years and going through as many challenging life experiences as we've had, you become so intertwined that it literally feels like half of you has died. I mean, your sense of identity, both personally and professionally, is has evaporated. So I, I was home in Illinois with my family and I was back in Michigan at our house and I just, I wasn't comfortable anywhere and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be or should be or could be a physician again. I didn't even know that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, everything felt so empty and meaningless and pointless and um, I felt really betrayed. Um, I was a pretty faithful person before that. And I felt really betrayed by God. Like mm-hmm. we had struggled to be together and God had finally right. brought us together right. after That's all this thinking. time. You're finally together. You've been distanced for eight yeah. years and now you're together and you're looking forward to your life together. And this is. Yeah. And just waiting for this opportunity for our lives to take off. And mm-hmm. um, then this person and Jeremy had always really felt like the right person for me. We just were like puzzle pieces. I mean, we had, we had our problems. We had, mm-hmm. you know, some serious problems too, like every couple does, but it was just, there was such a feeling of like peace and contentment with him that I just knew he was the person for me. So to have that ripped away from you leaves you questioning everything. Yeah. Um, and honestly, even. there was a part of me, Oh, I mean, the anger is, is unreal. And of course you take it out on the people who are doing their best Mm -hmm. to love you. And there's so much that you learn about if you, if you keep your eyes open, there's so much you learn, not only about yourself and your own grieving process, but how other people grieve and how other people deal with someone who is grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, this is really sad, but finally, one of the things that got me back to work was how do I pay off my student loans if I don't go into medicine? This is the road that I'm on. You know, I might as well keep going. So I went back to work. Um, My program at this point had changed a lot. um, And everyone, especially my attendings, were so supportive. And so this is second year residency. You're off for three months doing a bereavement. Yeah taking time, you know, you don't really know if it's just a bereavement leave, but taking a leave of absence essentially. And then you come back mm-hmm. still as a second year resident with your same class. Is that mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And they're very supportive um, and helpful of you, which is as they should be, but not always the case yeah. in medicine, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. They make you use up all your PTO first, right. which is real ironic because then somebody who's grieving doesn't get any vacation for a year. Um, and that, that's super healthy. Let's talk about that. (laughs) But yeah, so we came back and finally that spring, then I decided it was time to do grief counseling. I was through enough of the anger that I was willing to even talk about it. Um, and that's hard. Like if you, you want to be ripped open in a good way, uh, grief counseling is the way to do it, but, um, it was really necessary. And I am extremely grateful for Nan. That was my counselor. Um, She's a very special person. Well, and so many of us, like, you know, lots of us go through counseling and therapy at different sessions in our life. But, like, to do it when it was still so fresh, I can imagine, was both uh, 
traumatic and super hard and you know like being ripped open it's one i guess i'm saying it's one thing to be ripped open years after the fact and be like okay well you know here's all Mm -hmm. the stuff i swept under the rug and ignored or stuff like that but to be ripped open right after the fact is both terrible and no doubt beneficial in the long term to be like okay i'm gonna take care of this now you know before you create bad habits. before i create the bad habits or you know i bury all this terrible stuff I don't know. I've, I've always thought it would be opposite would be harder to not deal with something for years and years. And, then, um, you know, and then try to process it when there has been so much suppressing of it. I, I don't know. Pro- I think, probably I think like we said we before, just different kinds of hard. We're, we're going to be okay. I'll be okay. I just got to get through this and like everything. Like yeah. that. And that's, that's the reason it gets put off for years and years. And then it's like, Oh wow, I guess I'm mm-hmm. not okay. And it's, you so easily could have done that too, right? Like you could have been like, oh, I'm just going to go back to residency and all I got to do is get through residency. So I'm going to bury my nose and study. Yeah. And I did put it off. I mean, I didn't probably start. So he passed in August and I didn't start until April, which yeah, in retrospect, doesn't seem like a long time, but it felt like a long time to sit with all those feelings. Um, and I, I really don't, remember what it was that pushed me over the edge I remember talking to an attending who I was really close with and she you know I I asked her if she knew of anyone and she said that she didn't that she felt like she'd probably be a really good fit and she specialized in grief and so that's how I got hooked up with Nan and I'm so grateful for that because as I counsel patients who are dealing with grief now so often I hear them say it just wasn't a good fit. I could tell right off the bat, like they didn't know what they were talking about or doing, or it just didn't feel comfortable. Um, I think it was because I needed to stop feeling dead inside, even if it was to feel horrible again, just to feel something I, I needed to not feel like I was dying inside anymore. And I think that's, finally what pushed me over into getting I was never suicidal but there's a big difference between feeling like you want to die and wanting to kill yourself mm-hmm. and that's a that's a big distinction I think people need to understand um did yeah did you feel was maybe did you ever have any hesitancy as you know this is an oft talked about subject but the you know not being able to see a counselor or a, somebody mm-hmm. as a, you know, a physician and everything like that. And like, oh, we're not allowed to do that. Or, you know, it, it will might, cost, it will cost me my career or my yeah. medical license. It might be hard to get a like license that. in a Was state Was that somewhere. something that had held you back or were you just, did you, was that a consideration? It wasn't because I didn't see how anyone could hold me accountable or hold it against me that I, you know, that my husband passed and I needed help getting through it. In fact, Um, I felt like people would think that it was a positive that I did try to deal with it. Um, I really struggled with confidence and trusting myself and trusting my own decisions. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I felt like I needed to do that to get that back. Like (laughs) I remember I was on call one night and I accidentally told a patient the wrong test result. And I had a, there was no negative sequela of about it other than me having to apologize. And the patient was super gracious about it, but I had a complete meltdown with my senior resident and my program director. And it was just like, I shouldn't be practicing. I can't be trusted. Like, how do I know, 
you know, that I know what I'm doing anymore. Are you guys watching me close enough? I hope you're watching me close enough because what if I mess up? You know, I don't, I don't want to hurt somebody. And you know, that, that happened more than once, never again to any like negative outcome, but um, I had to get over that. If I was, if I was going to stay in medicine and keep taking care of people and have people's lives in my hands, like I couldn't, I needed to stop taking responsibility for something that I had no control over. A, a hypersensitivity and I wasn't gonna... to failure or, yeah. Well, it's so interesting. It sounds like um, we, neither of us knew you during this time, but it sounds like before Jeremy passed, you were very confident, like even so much so that it was almost held Seniors against would you. comment on it. Or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then you go through this period that basically just strips you of all of that. What, was there anything besides grief counseling or other things that, um, you know, for other people who might be going through this, like what helped you? Cause I, I mean, me knowing you, I think you're a very confident person and maybe you're not even at that level that you ever were before. Maybe you'll never be back there, but, um, what helped you regain kind of your sense of self and your confidence? Um, my family was a huge, huge help. I mean, God love them. They would take the train up all day from, from St. Louis to Flint, Michigan, which was like a 12 hour train ride just to come and stay. They all took turns for like a week, mm-hmm. literally just to take care of my dog because they knew that Brody was super important. And Jeremy and I had adopted him together. And I was on nights right away when I restarted and, you know, I just needed help with my dog. And like, they, I think they just knew that like, I couldn't handle one more thing and I needed, I needed to know that my dog was okay and so they all took turns just coming up for a week. And I think as I started to come out of the fog of that initial grief, I started to be able to appreciate that. And it made me realize, realize how loved and supported I was and how I still had value, even if I felt empty inside. Um, and that, that was a big help. I really had great attendings who constantly just kind of like checked in, but not in a nosy way Mm -hmm. and just never faltered in their faith in me, you know, kind of probably pushed me a little bit. And I think that was really good because it made me realize that they still trusted me and that that's just what you need. You know, you need people to just kind of keep (laughs) shoving you along a little bit um, until you can kind of get your own motivation back. But I also think that I'm definitely not the same person I was before that goes without saying, but I think that I'm maybe, I I hope that I am more humble than I used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's better. I, mm-hmm. I like this version of myself that's more empathetic mm-hmm. and more patient um, and is always going to look to me to be the first person to, you know, do better or correct a mistake and not automatically assume, you know, that I know what I'm doing all the time. I think just, it's made me, it's made me a better human. Yeah. I have maybe, I don't know if this is a strange question or not, but do you have any advice? I think it's hard for a lot of people, especially people who haven't been through grief about how to handle somebody or I don't even know if handle is the right word, but how to um, empathetically support support somebody who's going through grief. Like, do you have any tips on that or tips on for somebody that's like going through grief themselves? My biggest tip to somebody who's going through grief is to just keep getting up every day. Just do the small things. Even if all you can do that day is to take a shower and go right back to bed, just keep, keep doing that. And eventually 
you will be able to do a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and my, my biggest piece of advice um, on how to treat someone who is grieving is to remember, first of all, that how you're feeling um, is not what they're feeling and to not project on them. And people, people don't, they're so uncomfortable with death mm-hmm. and grief that they, the way that people react to you when they're grieving is all about them. And that's okay because that's all they know and you can't fault them for it. Even in the moment though, you may be like, please shut up and stop talking to me right now. <laughs> um, but just remember that you're dealing with grief based on what you think you know about it. And you're probably trying really hard to comfort that person. And maybe that's not really what they need that you need to try to meet them wherever they're at. And to remember that um, I'm a big believer that there are three types of people that you meet when you're grieving. The first one is someone who has been through what you're going through and knows exactly how you feel and can relate to you. And the second type is someone who actually has never been through what you've been through, but somehow relates. And those people come out of the woodwork and they are so very precious to you. I am still to this day, extremely close with a couple of um, nurses on LND and none of them ever had their husbands or their children or anyone close to them pass away. But man, they just got me and they were who I needed them to be. And they just let me be where I was at. And those people are so incredibly precious. And what's really hard is that a lot of times those aren't necessarily the people who are already in your inner circle Mm -hmm. because the third group of people, and this is unfortunately the majority of people are the people who have no idea what you're going through and also have no idea how to relate to you. And they're approaching grief from what they see on movies and TV and what they think it's supposed to look like and what they think they're supposed to do. And it's probably not helpful for you at all. It might even be really irritating or overwhelming or suffocating. And it's hard because some I, I had people in my inner circle and it's not that I'm not close again with them now, but for a while I kind of had to change who was allowed close to me because I needed the people who got it. Um, That's probably my biggest, biggest piece of advice. Yeah. There's no cookie cutter response. I think, I think that's the the best thing you, or like the the thing that I took away the most is to meet that person where they're at. Like, I think, you know, in movies and everything, there's this cookie cutter response, like, Oh, I'm going to like give them a meal or like, what can I do for you? Like not everyone, not everybody deals with grief the same. And not everyone, you know, what it's just like being loved. Like we are all love different. We all have different love languages. Like we all deal with things differently. And so to meet somebody where they're at, I think that's really good, really good advice. And I would say like, I mean, I've been through grief, not to the same level you have, but like, it's still hard for me to find the right way to support people sometimes through grief because it's all different too. Like for you to lose your loved one who was young, you know, is very different than me losing my mom who was sick for a long time. You know, there's just so many different aspects to loss um and grief Mm -hmm. and it's very hard to i think always everybody wants to be treated differently and goes through it differently and that's a hard thing to do but yeah i think that's great piece of advice i think that's something a lot of people struggle with i still like i said i still struggle with um supporting people appropriately through grief yeah i mean we all do no one no one becomes an expert on it just because you know you've grieved in the past um Mm -hmm. 
if I could say one more thing, I would also say it's okay to give them space. Mm-hmm. Like my mom and I went through a really rough patch um, when Jeremy first died because she just wanted to love me so hard through it. And it was so hard for her to watch me grieve as her child. Like she didn't know what to do for me. And I was so like, just felt suffocated. Mm. I think she was afraid of leaving me alone and, or making me feel like I wasn't loved and important. And that's not how I felt at all. Like I was literally just trying to survive. (laughs) I didn't even care if people were calling and texting me every day. Um, So I think remembering that space is a form of love too, Mm -hmm. both in romantic relationships and when people are grieving and they know that just because you're not calling them every five minutes doesn't mean that you don't care or that you've forgotten about what happened to them. They might appreciate having a little time to themselves. Mm -hmm. One thing that I tell people too is like, I feel, I feel like, and this happens with every single person I've seen who's lost someone. It's just like this flood right away. Like every single person is like bringing you meals, Mm. even when you don't need meals and like flooding. And then it's like three months down the road. No yes. one cares. Yeah. That's when that's the when text you need the that one says person. I love you. Yeah. The text that says, Do you need food? Are you still are you are you taking care of yourself three months yeah. down the road? That's when people forget. Um and so that's something that I consciously from going through grief try and pay attention to because I do think I mean I was young too, so I, it wasn't the same, but um like I, I can see that suffocating and I see it when my friends grieve too. Like I've had a couple of friends who've lost a parent. Um, and they usually will come talk to me just because they feel like I might be able to relate to that. Um, sure. I definitely feel like that suffocating happens to everybody. It's just like this, like people just want to be there right then. And mm-hmm. maybe space is good. And then check in on them you know, two yeah. weeks, a month down the road, I think. And and sometimes people even like years. Like I had one friend, um, I don't know if I talked about this before, who every single year for like a decade probably on the date of my mom's death would text me and say, I'm thinking about you. And it's just like that little thing, even when I like wasn't super close to that person was like so big, right? Like this person remembers. That's huge. Yeah. 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 I remember, I remember being at work months later after I had gone back and I remember like walking down the hall thinking most of these people have kind of forgotten, like Mm -hmm. they've moved on their lives keep going and that's, that's okay. They have to, but yeah, I, I think your advice is, is so spot on because you do start to feel like everybody else has forgotten. Everyone else has moved on except for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people you remember are the ones who were there, you know, for months and months, they were there the whole time and part of you through the whole thing. And it's not the people who, you know, showed up with the casserole, yeah, mm-hmm. the the week afterwards and stuff like that. When the, you're the like ones, not even eating, the, you know the yeah the the <laughs> right. two or the one to four people who were there the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you well, so yeah. much for sharing that. I think um, I know it's hard even now. How many years ago was that? It'll be seven seven this summer. Okay. Yeah, I know. Which is so bizarre, right? So you're yeah yeah. I mean, yeah, and I th- I really like the uh, your points on the three types of people. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty astute observation there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you so much. I know that's hard, very hard thing to talk about the the time around Jeremy's death and um, then how you dealt with it and things like that. So we really appreciate you um, talking about that with us. 
Yeah, but let's no, go I'm, back I'm happy. now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Let's out of that. <laughs> five, all right. Five cool. minute cry break and yeah. we'll all be back. <laughs> <laughs> Clean yourself up and let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm like an attending like, all right. Okay. It's been no, a it's, week. It's Deirdre, let's go. <laughs> Just um, but so, okay. So that, you know, you've done residency and fellowship now kind of, um, do you have anything to say? I mean, kind of staying in the same vein, I guess, with how that was like, kind of what was that process like your friends and moving on and kind of now you're like back in the life of it. Like, um, you were just a different person and kind of had new perspective. Um, or did this change? Yeah. Like, did you change your um, path as far as medicine goes too? I, I don't really know. Um, if, I, if I had to guess, yeah, I, I bet that if Jeremy were still here, my path probably would have changed. Um, we were kind of, you know, starting to talk about kids mm-hmm. a little bit before he passed. Um, and I think that had we had kids and we had always kind of talked about moving home because his family is from St. Louis. So, you know, just right across the river from mine. I probably would not have done a fellowship. I probably would have just gone straight into practice as a generalist and you know, move straight home. Um, so I do think that his passing gave me some freedom in a sense Mm -hmm. to, you know, I was, I was single. I, why not do more training if, if that's what I wanted. And that is what I wanted at the time. Um, and that's kind of how skydiving, uh, ties into all of this. The reason I started skydiving is, um, after Jeremy passed away, a mutual friend said, Hey, you might really find this therapeutic. Um, if you're ever interested in going, let me know. And I totally went and did not even like think about what I was doing until after I got uh-huh. and I, I just like, I went into it with like blinders on, like, it seems like such a blur. And then it wasn't until afterwards and I called my mom and I was so pumped and uh-huh. I just felt amazing. And she was in she was furious with me <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I did just jump that fucking crazy. Why did you just jump out of an airplane? But it made me feel alive again. Yeah. As cliche as it sounds it like it was. Yes. That's the perfect way to describe it. It was put, like coming yeah. up for air. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's hard to, it's hard to explain to maybe people who, you know, don't do it or anything like that, or not, not even the people who don't do it. Like, <laughs> There, I think there's a certain subset of adrenaline junkies who this will work for, right? Mm-hmm. Like the people mm-hmm. who can set aside, you know, the fear or who thrive on the fear or who can set aside the risk. Uh, you know, people get that sort of breath of fresh air all sorts of ways. You know, there's people who can go to church and feel like they get that breath and everything like that. Or, you know, the sense of community and everything. But I was going to ask you about, like, you know, how do you how do you develop this? So, you know, this friend who invited you out uh was it were they a skydiver yeah so he was he was a mutual friend um somebody that i had met in in michigan um through some friends that jeremy and i had made and he had been in two really bad motorcycle accidents and almost died and so he had gotten into skydiving as (laughs) a way to kind of yeah well yeah yeah um as fulfilling that need for speed and um yeah i so i went on a tandem and as soon as I got down I mean this sounds really cheesy but I love that picture of me landing 
because yeah, that's me. Like that, that is who I am in my heart. Like I remember that feeling. I can still capture that same feeling. Like I'm getting excited even talking about it because (laughs) it was, it was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not dead. Life is not over. There are beautiful, amazing things to experience. There are still things for me to do in this world. And it just totally rejuvenated me. And it also gave me such a great thing to focus on through the rest of the grind of residency. Mm -hmm. So, so was this pretty early? That was after he passed that you decided to jump for the first time? It was a year after he passed. So I afterwards at some point. Yeah, it was the Labor Day following. So he had been he had um, been gone for just about a year um, or a little over a year at that point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just I kept I got totally hooked and just kept doing it. And it was it was awesome. And it's still the thing that gives me the biggest relief. I I think sometimes because certain aspects of what I do are so intense that I almost need a hobby that's equally as intense to like, Hmm. you know, flush all that out and let everything go. And I tell people all the time, like, you can't think about anything else during skydiving. Like if you're in free fall and you're thinking about like, I got to pay that bill, you're going to have an accident or you need to quit the sport because you're not in it for the right reasons anymore. Like it's so refreshing to just be able to shut that part of your mind off and just be in the moment completely. Yeah, the way I think of it is like sometimes, especially when you need it the most, it's like you step out that door off the plane and you know the wind just strips everything away but what you need. And what you need isn't to be, you know, sag or heartbroken or, you know, worried about life or everything. It's what you need is to, you know, go and do this 360 degree turn to a proof to a easier instructor or you know, uh, to, you know to nail this dive so that you know your peers are you know everybody can come down and have a great thing and it's just like 60 seconds of pure you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely All yeah that's, that's really poetic away. actually oh thank you yeah it's it's a very interesting experience and I'm you know there's lots of ways I'm sure you will achieve that in your life that doesn't involve jumping off a plane but it's a it's an easy way you can just pay you can pay 200 bucks and gig if you're the right person <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and I I don't think it's for everybody I'm not a believer that like everybody needs to do this um cuz when people get down from a skydive you can tell right away mm. like they're either they either loved it and they're going to do whatever they can to do it again or they're like Right, that was cool but like i never need to do that again yeah um and that's a that's okay yeah Lindsay's, <laughs> Lindsay's one of those, to be fair she dig hers hungover so i'm trying that's to get true. her to do it again oh that sounds like a terrible combination right but it was like you need it was kind of that life that there was like it was a time in my life where i was like f everything like i don't mm-hmm. even care like i just want to jump out of a plane right now like and everybody all my friends mm-hmm. were like are you seriously going skydiving day and i was like yeah I like drove by the skydiving place and Dave and I just kind of started dating and I was like, all right, I'm coming. Like, um, and I just remember pulling off and being like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. But I was mm-hmm. over too. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so maybe I went to drinking first and not, no, just kidding. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, so maybe I'll do it again, but I, I landed and was, David's like, what'd you like? And I was like, uh, it was all okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm glad I'm back on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So, 
And but that's to- that's totally fair. Yeah. The funny thing is, in, in the plane, she's like doing these breathing exercises, and I've she's got her <laughs> Apple Watch on, and I'm like, show me your heart rate and everything like that, and like she's just stone cold, like at twelve thousand feet, uh-huh. right before we're about to jump out, and she's like, oh well. Just didn't get a reaction. However, she's got those uh, those surgeons' uh, well, skills. And I it's guess. a lot different doing yeah. a tandem, though. I tell everybody this that asks me about doing a skydive. They're like, "I'm so scared," and I'm like, "You have zero, like absolutely zero control <laughs> as a tandem. Like to me, doing a tandem mm-hmm. has got to be so different than I don't skydive, but like than actually jumping because to me, I'm like, I have zero control. I'm strapped to somebody. Like you do, like give up all control, and I'm okay with that. I was like, okay. Fine. Like, and so my heart rate was fine because I was like, all right, Rocky has got me, my tandem instructor, <laughs> and he's cool and he knows what he's doing. He's and this I'm just big, beautiful basically, dude. Like. Yeah. I'm basically just, like putting my life in his hands and I signed a waiver and whatever. And I was at that point in my life too where I was like, I don't really even care. Like, nobody's going to get anything. I have no money and um, whatever. Um, this is a good time to jump out of a plane, but you seriously have no control. When you're actually yeah. skydiving, I think it's different. I mean, I don't know, but yeah, it's got to be different because she, I she gave. She got I, the rush from her first. I tandem. had zero control, so I was just like, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, and it's funny. I think you you definitely hit on a good point there because there's actually now that I'm doing it myself, one of the aspects that I like is that I do have control, mm-hmm. which is like that surgeon part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Like I really hate having someone else pack my parachute because if it opens and it's crappy it's my fault. And if it opens and it's beautiful, that was me, you know? So I don't, I don't like letting anybody else have that kind of responsibility. I mean, I do it sometimes because I have to, but, um, yeah, now it's more about like, I'm, I'm the one responsible, um, for it, but yeah, I, I do remember that appeal of like, cool, I can just be here and hang out and he's going to let me, you know, pull when it's time. And, whatever but. i didn't even get to do any of that they had zero trust in me no pulling <laughs> i didn't get to even like help guide the parachute he was just like please don't vomit on me <laughs> i didn't for the record that's probably why they were like no she's way too hungover to be be involved in this and so another thing i just kind of thought of of what maybe can help bring you out of your shell out of an event like, you know, losing somebody or, you know, any sort of loss or grief is, you know, you go out and skydive and like, oh, I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden you're in a new place with an entirely new friend group who don't know anything about mm-hmm. you. And you can act however you want and like be oh my the God, person yes. and just release everything. You know, you spend so much of your time acting like, okay, I'm, you know. I'm I'm doctor and you know I've got to go into here and I'm a resident and like when you go out to the drop zone like you get to be just the core of who you are or who you want to be there. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah, that I think that was a big part of it too is I got to shed this persona of who I was supposed to be and you know I, that's one thing that I the skydiving community is so welcoming and so open and like you can be as professional as you want Monday through Friday, but on Friday night, if you want to jump out of an airplane and then like, you know, be naked around a bonfire, like it's cool. And nobody is thinking about, Oh my God, she's the doctor. I can't believe that she's doing that, mm-hmm. you know? And that is also very liberating. David, I, I completely agree with you. I think that that's so necessary for everybody to have that safe mm-hmm. space well, where it- you can just, 
be who you want to be. Yeah, and a chance for you to shed your grief and like be with people who don't know yeah. anything about it. Like you can just go there yes. and love this thing and not have to deal mm-hmm. with anybody, you know, talking about it or thinking, even yeah. knowing about it. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's very freeing. So what is as we kind of move in, you know, you take up skydiving. So how do you, you're kind of getting to a point in your life and your career where you can start to develop outside of school and medicine and, you know, start to develop what your life's going to look like and what you want from life. You've what are you chickens. thinking at this point? Oh, you're not, I don't think she's quite to <laughs> okay, chicken sorry, stage sorry, when sorry. it comes to skydiving. <laughs> she's still a resident, but it's like, how do you, how do you begin to, de- you start skydiving. How else do you begin to develop the person you are? outside of medicine during this time like what makes you happy what do you like to do or you know um just you know spending a lot of time with again people who don't think of me as a doctor or don't think don't have to think of me as someone who is a widow um you know i i had some really great non-medical friends that i met in residency i was really fortunate to kind of be um introduced into this group of people who were similar to my age and so you know, just spending time with them and being outdoors, going camping, you know, Michigan is really beautiful, especially if you love the outdoors and, um, you know, winters suck, obviously, but the rest of the year, (laughs) it's really great. And there's a ton to do. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's really bizarre to sort of like reinvent the version of yourself that you want to be at like 33 or well, sorry, 30 years old. it's bizarre to, to kind of like get to decide now what path, um, is my life going to be on? There's, there's also a grieving process that goes not only with losing your person, but losing that path that you saw yourself on with them. Um, you know, like I think I would have had kids had Jeremy survived and now I don't really want them. Um, I, I, I still haven't fully figured out why that is but I all I think that's part of it is because like I saw this path with him and and then the path is gone and when I reimagined this new path or made this new path like that just wasn't really a part of it and that desire now has kind of gone um and has nothing to do with the partner that I'm with now but part of it is also just getting older you know and you kind of start to like the way that your life is Plus I get to live vicariously through my patients, but after I've delivered them and I'm walking down the hall and that baby's screaming at 3am, it's not my problem anymore. (laughs) I hope that doesn't make me sound like a terrible OBGYN, but um, I highly value my sleep. Um, Yeah. So it is, it's really strange to, because you know, you're older, you have different life perspective, you're more mature, you know yourself a little bit better and then you, get to you get to kind choose of create, what you're gonna be yeah basically but as an adult and not as like a naive you know 20 yeah. year old mm-hmm. who doesn't know anything about life um yeah so it's it's strange it's jarring for sure but also kind of exciting what excites you about what's coming up besides passing your uh your boards here oh I don't know. Makes me feel really anxious just talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I actually want to ask going back a little bit. So, okay. You finish fellowship. Now Mm -hmm. you, so I would think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to be kind of in this like minimally invasive gynecology, surgical gynecology, you probably, if you're just going to focus on that, need to be in a big city. But you go back to a small town 
So you're probably doing kind of a combination of general OBGYN as well as kind of using your fellowship. How'd you Mm -hmm. get there? Um, What took you back um, or took you to Illinois and uh, away from maybe staying in Seattle or a big city? Yeah. Um, I never really cared for a lot of the aspects of academic medicine. I liked having residents and med students, but I have zero desire to do research. It's just not something I enjoy. And so I didn't want to get cornered into that going to an academic program. Um, I originally thought I would stay in Washington or Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, you know, that part of the country. I know. I would love to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be there. Um, But, and I kind of like started looking a little bit, plus a lot of those places, um, you know, similar to what you're doing, there's a need in more remote areas. So you can kind of focus your practice in a big area, but then um, travel and do sort of outreach. And that really interests me. But ultimately I realized that my parents were getting older. You know, you, when you don't see them all the time, you all of a sudden just wake up and you're like, whoa, what happened since the last time I saw you? And thankfully they're both really healthy, but I realized that I could live with one of two regrets. I could either live where I wanted to live, but regret not seeing them more and not enjoying and absorbing these years of their lives because I won't have them forever. Um, Or, you know, I could regret, um, you know, moving home. And I knew that was a really, once I, once I put it to myself that way, that wasn't, that was a no brainer. So um, I actually, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, That's a very kind of astute Mm -hmm. uh, analysis there to where you, Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, it's like, Oh, the choice should be obvious. Right. Yeah. And you know, depending on your relationship with your family, like totally clear way of like stating it for yourself. Like, Mm-hmm. What's what's going to be important to me here for the next period of yeah, my life? Yeah, and that, and like I said, you know, I can kind of make my my heaven wherever I go. I've lived in enough <laughs> small, yeah. no name places that I, I'm a big believer that you make you make what life is what you make of it. You know, it can be as great or as not great as you want. But um, so once I made that decision, then it was again really weird how it all played out. I was contacted by a recruiter who just so happened to be from St. Louis. She said, I know this practice in Breeze, Illinois. And I was like, I'm going to stop you right there. I was born out of that practice. I used to be a patient of that practice. And she was like, well, what would you think about coming? And I was like, well, I've seen it as a patient. It seemed pretty well run to me. So yeah, let's, let's take a look. So I actually scheduled two interviews for the same weekend. They were dramatically different. One was like two hours south of here. And then the one that I ultimately ended up joining. And the one two hours south was like, so much money and I was going to get to do all this surgery. But when I tell you that it was too good to be true and that I was a little like, there was this red flag of kind of feeling like a little bit of a God complex with the guy that I was going to be working with. Mm -hmm. It just, it felt bad. It was a 12 hour day of everyone telling me how awesome this person was. And I was like, no, no one is this cool. So, and then I met my current partners and they seemed really happy and they got along really well. And they seemed like they had a pretty good work-life balance and they were looking for someone who had the skill set that I had and they were not uh, intimidated by it. They were really excited about it and wanted to market the heck out of it. So um, yeah, so it, it became 
an easy choice. And it was, it was coming home in so many ways. Um, and it's been, it's been great. I mean, would I love to probably just focus on gynecology? Yes. I, I could give up OB. Um, I love, I love the patients. I know. I'm sorry. I'm a bad person for saying that, but I love, I love the patients. I love the relationship. You never, you'll never have a relationship until you see someone like 30 times in the matter of a year, you know, Mm-hmm. that's a very special kind of relationship. Um, and for someone to trust you to, you know, bring their child into the world, but the stress of being responsible for two lives at a time, the inevitable possibility that things could go incredibly wrong at any moment and not always having the resources, um, to be, you know, to be able to handle those things, especially being in a rural setting. Um, and just honestly, the sleep deprivation, like it wears on you. And there's so many studies coming out about how bad it is for you. Um, I would love to just focus on, on that, but I have really good partners. We get along really well. We balance each other out. And I, I can't imagine like giving that up. It feels like it would be stupid. It feels like it would be, you know, always wanting the grass to be greener. So I don't know what the future holds. I'm open to possibilities. Um, but for right now, I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And that may change in a couple of years or 10 years. I, I don't know. I'm open to it. But right now, I feel like this is the place for me. That's well, great. Yeah, Lindsay's starting a uh, Mosin gynecology clinic here in Spokane. <laughs> oh, my God. I want to be all about that. We could talk about that. Maybe we here, got but, you head to toe. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. so that, was your, that was your first job out of fellowship. Yeah. You've been, I mean, that's incredible. I don't think that that always happens in medicine either well and i think uh it's really easy to get wooed too i think you make an intelligent Mm -hmm. choice there to be like okay well you know here's this is maybe a one to turn down more money it sounds like and two like okay well this is not the prestigious or maybe like uh you know i'm not working with this superman or anything like that but to choose something that feels well suited to you Mm -hmm. and uh to be somewhere where you're happy versus having to maybe deal with crazy ego or anything like that yes more to like knowing yourself well and probably the the trying times you had before helped you get to the point where you kind of know exactly what you or you thought, you know, you had an idea of what you wanted and what would fit you best. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And, and helping me to remember how important it was to spend time with my family, because when you're away for so long, you get used to being away and you get comfortable with it. And, um, but you, you have to remind yourself how important it is. Like you, you kind of get used to just not seeing your family and it becomes, you know, the norm to not be home for holidays and well, sorry, I can't come home. I'm working. Um, but it was, I'm glad that I was able to kind of circle back and, um, I would say be less selfish about it. I think that was, that was the right choice because now I live 25 minutes from them and I get to see them a couple times a week and I get to see two of my three sisters all the time. And, um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely the right choice for now. I don't regret it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, the work-life balance is something that would be hard to give up. I, I talk to my co-residents from, from my program and man, I hear some horror stories about the practices that they're in and I'm, I'm very grateful for what I found. So, yeah, 
I think it can be a rough a rough road trying to figure it out because they don't teach us any of that in med school or even residency. Yeah. Um, there's a lot there's a lot outside of outside of that to to learn as I've kind of been learning throughout my experience. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, is this um, is this your first job out of your fellowship? I can't remember if was, you told me. Yeah, but now I'm doing full time locum, so I'm kind of like on to my oh, second okay. job, I guess. But yeah. So yeah. So, I don't know. Do you have anything yeah. else, David? I mean, Do you have anything else? Yeah, I mean, this is a chance for if you've got something you wanted to say, but I think uh, we've had a very interesting conversation, yeah. at least. Thanks for giving up so I much hope. of your time during your... Uh, yeah. Oh. This might have been... This was your study break for the day, I'm sure, besides your shower earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Actually, it was... No, I, I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. I just... I'm sorry if the conversation was was one sided. I want oh, I want to hear more no, about you, no. so I need this to stop your podcast. You. <laughs> <laughs> you make more appearances. Well, next time interview us, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. We should do like a flip version of Subcutaneous, oh. where it's your podcast, but I'm introducing you, yeah. and I get to you know Somewhere. put you guys through the paces a little bit. Yeah, you and Jason need to come up here, and then we could do an in person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think fun. what would help you get through your uh, your studies and everything like that is, you know, about ten days of being in Montana <laughs> with no internet or cell reception. Oh, <laughs> you could bring like printed oh out God. versions of your cases. Oh, there and you study go. Them. I will quiz you. Yeah, I will personally good? ask you tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, why did you do that? Was that the right decision? I, <laughs> I don't know believe if it was. you. I believe you. And I'm a little terrified, actually, because I know how smart you have to be to be in Durham. So, I mean, even though, like, it's not your specialty, you'd yeah. probably really put me in my place. I'm not sure I want that. No, no she'd no. be like, I don't know what this thing you removed is. But oh, are you sure you need to do that? Like, <laughs> was that the right call? Why didn't you remove this other thing? I don't know what it is. <laughs> Hey, I almost I thought I wanted to do OBGYN for a while. Yeah, now you've forgotten it all. Shh. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's a weird thing that happens too. Like the, the further out you get from med school, like all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's partly why med school seemed like such a blur, is because you have to dump so much of that knowledge to make room for what you need to know. And so, you know, like why did I have to learn the Krebs cycle? Why did that ever have to take up some right. neuron space in my brain? I know. Because I've forgotten it. I never will use it. I didn't even need to understand it to do what I do now. So, yeah. you know, There's whatever. even things in residency that like, so we would have to know all these incredible details about a very rare, like, you know, like one in, I mean, or not, like maybe only 500 people have ever had it, you know, we'd have to know. It. And then they'd be mm-hmm. like, what gene was it? And it's <clears> like, if, as long as I can recognize the disease, then I can go in a book and figure out what the what the gene was. You know, it's just so interesting. Medicine, these things like the Krebs cycle and like, like I don't, maybe there's some rhyme to yeah. that reason. I don't it's know. It's all about proving yourself, I guess, or I guess working is, hard. Yeah. yeah. I do believe, you know, that there's a foundational aspect to it. I get that, that it all builds on each other. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean... Uh, we could go on and on, but I think that's a big part of why I don't remember a lot of it because I probably intentionally had to forget a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> Can I look this up in a book? All right, out my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And, you know, I, I don't know why I think of this all the time, but thank God for, for this, <laughs> yeah, because I, having the internet at your fingertips, yes. medicine was so dramatically different before that was even That's an true. option, you know, be, being able to look anything up at a moment's notice. In some ways, I feel like it's, it's made us lazier because mm-hmm. you don't, you don't have to retain it. It's always available. Yeah, so. it probably gives you uh, access to better information mm-hmm. faster. Which yeah. maybe you may be lazier doctors, but you're probably better doctors for it. <laughs> he totally just agreed we were lazy. Just wanted you to pick up on that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is definitely lazier to Google something than to have to go to like the the office library and pull out the book <laughs> and like, okay, here's my book of rashes. Which one does it look like? <laughs> Not that one. Next page, like. Is that how you think we practice medicine? Oh, I mean, <laughs> am I wrong? Yes. It's how you used to practice medicine. Now you just Google it. Okay. <laughs> you got to know what to Actually, Google, though. That, that is so key. Actually, Lindsay, I have to tell you, um, the most feared textbook in all of OBGYN is Dermatology of Pregnancy. Oh my God. You want to make someone like quiver with fear? (laughs) You'll make make them open that book. It's so funny though. Everybody, that's how people feel about dermatology. I think everybody feels that way. They're like, like I would get consults like there's a rash and I'm like, okay, describe (laughs) it to me. They're like, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's like, red. I don't it's remember. Bumpy. The, everybody's like maculopapular. I'm like, is it really? Is it flat and raised? Okay. Um, is it or is that the only word you yes. remember from your derm rotation? Well, and then like some people like didn't even have derm rotations, right? So it's like this whole right. enigma of this thing that like people are like, oh my gosh. And I remember getting called at like 3 a.m. by peds and they're like describing the patient to me. And I'm like, just send me a picture. Like I'm half asleep, you know? And so they're like, okay, they send me the picture. I call them back. I'm like, it's staff's called skin syndrome. And they're like, no, it's not. It's Steven Johnson. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like you sent me the pictures and I can tell you what it is. Um, <laughs> this is why you called um, the console. Yeah, it's right, just, right. but it's so funny because that's definitely how our field is too. Like you have to describe it to me. And that's the amazing thing about phones. Like I can't imagine being a dermatologist or a derm resident even without phones because now mm-hmm. I would say upload the pictures in the chart and I'll review them. And, to, and that's yep. like night and mm-hmm. day because nobody can really describe a rash like a dermatologist can unless you've done a bunch <laughs> of rotations or things like that because we use weird words it's true like we're not like you mm-hmm. had, like was it greater than a centimeter is it raised does it have pus is it clear vesicles you know they all have a special mm-hmm. word so um you know and yeah that's when you really want to be a mean, vocabulary yeah when you want to be a mean derm consulting resident like they call you like please describe the rash they're like oh. <laughs> it's red and itchy yeah. i don't know just come see the patient please i'm sorry i called you <laughs> oh no, yeah we didn't have pictures. derm residents yeah we didn't have derm residents so, so. there's like three big things yeah. in pregnancy though so or maybe no there's four and this is four big dermatoses of pregnancy yeah. so pretty, yeah pretty much um, four down yeah. And you feel like a, such a rock star when you send them to Derm and then you they send you a consult back and you're like, I guessed right. Because really, that's <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, well, thank you guys so much. I have really enjoyed chatting with you. I I really do want to like turn the tables on you though sometime and Jason and I can like interview you. That would be be fun. fun. That would be so fun. We've got lots of room. Please come visit us. Come back to the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) We would love to host both of you guys. It would be so fun. Yeah, that would be a good time. Yeah, we... We want to check out your place. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Jason has been drooling over it. Okay, so when we, we can put him to work. We, too. Yeah, when we stop the recording, we're going to take you on a little uh, Zoom tour. Of oh the house. yeah. Okay, let's do that. So yeah. we'll wrap, if you have time, yeah, we'll wrap it fun. up here. Yeah. So, uh, Deirdre. Oh my gosh, I can't pronounce oh, yeah. her Can- last. <laughs> <laughs> Canobolit. <laughs> that is not right. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> No, it has to be right if you're going to actually use this at the end. Okay, well, somebody's got to pronounce it. For, I got to look up my phonetic yeah, look spelling. Look up your phonetic okay. spelling here. Jeez. Oh, this will be really fun. I can't okay. wait to hear it. Knoblock. Knoblock. How do I get an I in there? Oh, I put it. I put it lick. Like L I C K. Little Freudian slip there. Yeah. Okay. Here. <laughs> Doctor Deirdre, thank you for joining us. Close <laughs> <laughs> we do appreciate you having us and spending time during this busy time so yes, thank you this was a great interview very touching and very funny and uh, i think we all had fun well some fun thank I you thanks so much bit. for having me i, I know <laughs> tears it's okay though it's good i i'm glad you made <laughs> david cry yeah. he needs to cry sometimes yeah other than Lindsay putting me down Ugh. good night <laughs>